Okay, so good afternoon, everybody. Thank you all very much for coming, and thanks especially to Nick. Uh, so I, I I call Nick the the Duke of Dollars and Data Shy. <laughs> <laughs> he he is uh, Sir Nicholas Majuli, and uh, uh, the the thing I really like about him uh, is that he he doesn't really take anything for granted. So uh, finance and investing the 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 whole field is full of rules of thumb and best practices that have sort of been handed down over the ages, you know, uh, the 60-40 portfolio or the 4% rule for retirement or something like that. So there are all these rules of thumb, but Nick doesn't really take any of these things for granted. He actually goes and gets the data. He does the research, the simulations on the data himself, and then he comes to his own conclusions. So he adopts a very, very data-driven approach to all kinds of topics in finance and investing. And um, what he does is he makes all of, the, all of his conclusions, all the sophisticated analysis he does with the data, uh, all the conclusions he gets from there, he, he makes it available for free uh, for anybody to read on his wonderful website uh, called uh, offdollarsanddata.com. So that, that, that's something I really uh, appreciate. Uh, with with Nick, and the second thing I really like about him is he narrates a story beautifully. So it, it's one thing to crunch a bunch of numbers and do some research and come to some conclusions and so on. It's another thing to sort of narrate that story to an audience to keep them engaged and to tell them what is going on with the data in an intuitive way. And Nick is really really good at this to be able to weave a financial story from the data. So simple things like if, if you have $1,000, uh, is it better to invest all the $1,000 uh, at once right now? Or do you split it up into 10 chunks of $100 each and then invest that over the next one year or something like that? So which, which is the be better approach? Statistically speaking, which approach has uh, given you better results over time? Things like this. Um, so he thinks of these questions, these natural questions that will are, uh, occur to many people, but then he doesn't stop at the questions. He goes, does the analysis, does the research, and then comes back and tells you what he found in a really, really engaging way. And uh, so when, when I heard that Nick uh, was writing a book, um, I, I immediately made a note to myself that I should buy it. And Nick was actually kind enough to send me a copy, so I didn't have to buy it. And he sent me a copy with a wonderful handwritten note and so on. And I've read the book and uh, it's, uh, it is all that I uh, imagined it to be. It's, it's uh, just a wonderful book. Um, and I think most people will benefit from reading the book as investors. So uh, the, the book has two sections. Uh, it starts off with saving. Uh, so there are two two big things uh, that we investors have to do on the road to financial independence. One, one is saving money, and the second is intelligently investing whatever money we have saved. And so this book is very naturally divided into two parts. The first part tackles saving, and the second part tackles investing. And uh, in each part, there is a list of important questions that are asked, and then uh, each of those questions is answered. So for example, in the in the saving part, how much of your paycheck should you save? Or if you're trying to buy a big ticket item, how do you go and 
uh, save enough money to buy that item? What what, what methods do you use? And and so on. Um, if if you want to, uh, is it better to buy a house or is it better to rent a house? Things like that. And when it comes to investing, okay, what what kinds of things can you invest in? What kinds of uh, uh, do you invest in stocks? Do you invest in bonds? How do you diversify your portfolio? Uh, should you be worried about volatility? All, all these different questions are answered. And so this is just a, a wonderful book that will uh, teach you so many things. And uh, almost all the conclusions that Nick comes to in this book, they are supported by the data. So Nick has gone, done the research, uh, done the analysis, and then uh, come to a bunch of conclusions. And then the most important uh, of those conclusions he has taken and put into this book. Uh, so so I, I, I like the book very much. Uh, Nick, Nick, do you want to say a few words? I appreciate that introduction. I don't know if I'm going to be able to live up to it, but I truly appreciate it. Um, but yeah, thank you. And yeah, that's kind of the the premise of just keep buying is this, uh, you know, I divided into two sections, saving, investing, as you said, and just kind of tackling different questions that people had and people have asked me over the years and try to put the most important things in there and, you know, answer them to the best of my ability. And then I also, in addition to doing my own research, obviously, like I was on Google Scholar a lot for this book, you know, that was like half my time was on Google Scholar. The other half was like on synonym.com or thesaurus.com, whatever it's called, um, to just kind of get different words and things. But yeah, so that, that's a lot of, I have for that. Uh, that that's lovely. <laughs> so so uh, Google Scholar has all the, uh, I mean, uh, Google Scholar may point you to a bunch of articles and so on, but you, you need some subscriptions and things like that to be yeah. able to read uh, what you get, right? From, from Yeah, it depends. So some I could find free, some I could find, yeah, you kind of like hack it to get through it. But yeah, Google Scholar is really helpful when you're trying to like, you know, round out points, you know, for example, one of the points in the book is like, you know, if you're someone's trying to figure out, well, how do I motivate myself to save more money? And there's different like motivational tactics you can use like, oh, I'm going to save for a vacation or I'm going to save for my kids or, and they found that none of them work in the research. The only one that works is if you're saving for yourself. And so they've done these experiments where they take like a photo of you and then they realistically age you almost like what that face app thing did where it makes you look really old. And people who saw an older version of themselves were more likely to increase their savings rate than those who didn't, right? Just little things like that where, you know, just kind of imagining that, hey, I'm going to be an old person one day, that actually motivates people to save in a way that um, a lot of other things don't. Yeah, that that's a super interesting psychological trick. Uh, so, so, Nick, before uh, I, I ask you questions about what is in the book, uh, so can, can you tell us a little bit of um, your history? So where where did you grow up? What did you study? How did you get interested in finance and investing and all these topics? And basically, how, how did you come to write this book? Yeah, so I grew up in Southern California. Um, basically, all of my family still lives there. No one's ever left. I now live in New York City, so I'm the I'm the the proverbial black sheep of the family who left the left the the circle. Inner you, circle. you were the one who went over to the dark <laughs> yes. side. Yes, exactly. So um, I grew up in Southern California. Um, uh, just kind of was really into like math and stuff in high school. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to be an engineer, you know, got into college as an engineer. But I discovered like right in my senior year of high school, I discovered economics. And I was like, I really love economics more. So I was an economics major, focused on that for a few years. Um, and then in my senior year, I start, I took like my first like introduction to computer science class. And I was like, why did I should have minored in this? So I regretted like not doing it sooner because I loved it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I love this stuff. 
uh, after college, start working in litigation consulting. And that was where I got to really learn how to program, you know, and do data work. It was mostly data type programming. So I really got into that. I was using SAS. Some of you may know that programming language and eventually started using R. Long story short, I just became a data scientist, basically. And I just really love that. But you know, despite what everything I was doing in consulting, I realized I really love like, you know, personal finance and investing. So I'm like, I really want to do something with this, but I couldn't figure out what. So I even have like notes from 2014. You know, I remember I didn't start blogging until 2017, but I have notes from like 2014 about like, oh, I want to write all these blog posts about all these financial ideas I have. But like, I just couldn't find a good edge yet. And so by 2017, by late 2016, I realized, you know what, I think I have sufficient data skills where I can do something that's a little bit different than what most other people do. So I said, hey, I'm going to write one blog post a week and just see what happens. And basically, it's been 290 weeks since then. And I've just been writing ever since. Um, a lot of stuff happened in between. You know, I changed jobs. I left consulting. I'm now at a financial services firm, Riffle's Wealth Management. I've been there for basically almost four years now. So it's been quite a trip. And obviously, the book came out of all the writing. You know, I've now with 290 posts now, I've written over 300,000 words online. Um, and so some of that material made it into the book, you know, and I've obviously it was edited by my editor. So if you read a blog post and you see, oh, this is similar, you'll notice there are differences. There are things that have changed between um, what made it to the book and what I've written on before, previously. Um, but really, it's just kind of trying to expand these ideas and get them to a different audience because not everyone reads blog posts and things like that. So well, that's like a high level of like my, my background getting here. So do you split your time between uh, between the blog and uh, Ritholtz Wealth Management? Uh, Ritholtz is a full-time job. So I'm the COO there. I'm really doing operations stuff. It's not like I'm, I'm – of course, I write as well, but the writing is kind of like my side hustle. So I do that on the weekends. I'll spend, you know, I say 10 hours a week. It's probably a little less now, but I say like 5 to 10 hours a week writing a blog post. And it usually takes about that much time. Some take less, but yeah. So I'm spending that like every weekend. Basically, I'll take a Saturday or Sunday and just write it up and just have it ready for the next Tuesday, you know, and I, that's all I do. I just do one thing a week. Cause I mean, I've tried doing lots of other content. I did Instagram for a while and then I got annoyed with that because the, there's too many scammers and bots. I'm just like, I'm not going to help feed this platform that much anymore. So I stopped that, but yeah, I still blog every week. Okay. So that, that's why Facebook has not been doing well. Let's talk. <laughs> for, for different reasons. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, um, so if if you have to write a, a post uh, for for your blog, that that is a certain process of research, right? First, you have to come up with a with a question, um, like should should you buy or rent? So so the the central question that the that the post must uh, answer, and then you have to figure out okay, if I want to answer this question in a data driven way, then I, I have to go and here here is all the data that I need to gather. And then once I have this data, here are all the experiments and simulations that I have to run on this data in order to tease out the answer to this question. And, and then you have to get the data and uh, uh, write your R code to crunch the numbers. And then finally, you have to figure out uh, what the results are and how to explain that uh, in an engaging way on your, on your blog, right? Can, can you walk us uh, through this process? Like what, what is your routine for writing posts, how, how do you go about each stage of this process? Like what, what happens uh, behind the scenes before a blog post is published? Yeah, so the thing I'm gonna say here, and I think every blog post for me is different in how it's arrived. Sometimes I have a collection of articles I throw in there, quotes and articles, and I'll just have those loose leaf in there. I have like a rough idea what it's gonna be called, but I don't have a title yet. And then I eventually just kind of 
come up with an idea that kind of shapes everything together. Sometimes I just know, hey, I'm going to respond to this. And I just know I'm just going to respond to something. Sometimes I know I'm just doing like a historical analysis where I'm just gonna be like, okay, like what happened the last time the yield curve inverted? Okay, here's what happens. And so I already know, like, I'm just going to basically go and show all the prior yield curve inversions, compare them to history and say like, well, how does it generally perform and blah, 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 and talk about sample size issues and all this. Like, depending on what it is, it's it's very different, the process. Like when I already know, like those ones that are like very historical, like the, what's, let's just say with the yield curve, that's really those are usually easier to write because I just, I basically just know, okay, just, I just need to do all the data part. And then once I have the data, just talk, just talk about what happens in the data. And it's not going to be the most, the post isn't going to go super viral. I know that because it's just kind of for like market nerds like myself and others out there who are like be into it either way, but I can still talk about it and say, well, what's the takeaway here? You know, for example, with the yield curve, it's like, yeah, stock returns are probably going to be lower, but you don't really have many options. Like going to bonds is worse. Right. So you just have right. to accept that you just have to accept that we're probably going to have a recession and we're probably going to see some subpar stock returns the next 12 to 24 months, you know, and there's just nothing you can do about it, really. I mean, there's there's probably some things, but like, for all practical purposes, this the traditional tactical, hey, move to cash, move to bonds is usually a bad option here. So because um, it doesn't mean that stocks are going to have a negative return, but they're just going to have a less positive return than previously. It could be negative. Right. It doesn't. It depends, right? So that's an example. So I try not to focus too much on process. I know that's like, I'm not trying to be like, a, there's not a cop out, but like, there are certain people like, oh, I outline my entire article, then I do this, then I go just write a ton, and then I edit. Like, I don't really work that way, and I think everyone should just find what works for them. So that's like my big thing here because a lot of when people ask these questions, you're really trying to get it. Like, oh, does he have a secret? I'm just going to follow that. Like, I think you need to experiment and see what you like, you know. And, and the example I give is like David Perel and I. Like, David Perel is an incredible writer. We write so differently. Like, I'm like a I'm like a perfectionist in the sense of like. I want to make sure every line is right before I go to the next line to almost, or it's like pretty close or every paragraph's like basically right before I go to the next paragraph. I don't like just word vomiting everything and then going back and editing. I don't really do that. That's not my style. Like I'm like one line at a time, just get it perfect. Make sure one idea connects to the next, to the next, to the next, right? And just, you have this nice logical flow that just flows down the page, right? So that's my thing. I don't really outline or do things like that. So everyone's doing different stuff and it's okay that if you're not following what I do, if you need to like write every, like, there's people out there say, oh, you need to write every day. You know, that's the, you have to build a writing habit to write every day. Like, nope, I, six days a week, I don't touch writing. You know, I've sent text messages. That's my writing, you know, like I'm not writing anything most days a week. So I don't think if for some people they need that, but not everyone's going to need that. So I would just be a little skeptical of the writing advice, not that it's wrong or anything, just that there's a lot of different ways to do it. And if one particular method doesn't work for you, don't get discouraged and just find something that works for you. That, that's all that matters eventually, right? Like I wouldn't say I have a writing habit, but like I obviously do in the sense that I've written 290 posts in a row. So that's kind of my caveat there. Yeah, ex exactly. I, I love that because uh, just, just like writing, there is no single uh, trick or style that works for all investors either. So that there are some people who mm -hmm. you know, buy individual stocks and there are some people who swear by just buying index funds. And there are, I mean, still others who um, try to get market neutral returns without even picking individual stocks and trying to just uh, spot arbitrage opportunities and things like that. So, so to, to each his own. And I, I think the important thing, as you say, is to, is to find something that, uh, you can stick with over the long, uh, long haul. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, this is actually funny enough, like chapter 11 in the books about income producing assets and which assets you should own. And my, my main point there is like, there's lots of ways to get rich. You know, there really are like, you can, as you just said, you know, individual stocks or 
you know, index funds, or I mean, you can own real estate or like, there's so many ways to get rich. There's only really a few ways to go poor. I don't really discuss that in the book, but that's generally true. High risk and high spending There's really the only two ways that you can really like go for broke. Um, So as long as you try to avoid those types of things, you're probably going to be fine. Uh, Right, exactly. So, so leverage and lack of savings. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so are, th- are there standard places you go to to get the data? So uh, are there standard data sources or uh, have you somehow over the years uh, painstakingly curated a, a collection of data that you uh, that you use to write your posts? Yeah. So the most common one I use, so Schiller has some good S&P 500 data that's like total return, inflation adjusted, goes back to like 1871 or 1881. I can't even remember now. Um, obviously I try to like take, I try only to go after 1920 cause I don't, I mean, from 1870 or whatever to eight to 1920, it was like railroads only. I don't consider that the American economy, even though it kind of was at the time. Um, so yeah, I so see Schiller data. Y charts is one of my sponsors or so full disclosure. You know, I'm, I'm uh, having a partnership with them, but I use them for a lot of data. Um, sometimes I might use, I know dimensional fund has data cause I have access to them since we, uh, we have some of their funds for our clients. So there's a host of different places you can go. Goyle has some good data. Um, yeah, I mean, you just kind of get used to it over time. You know, if you need, oh, I know, I need daily stock market data. Okay, then I got to use the Dow stuff going back to the 1950, you know, 1915. I think it's on Bloomberg, right? I'll just have that data right. ready, you know, and just update with like, I usually have that old data set, which goes back to 1915. I keep reusing it. And then I just add like, oh, I need 2021. Okay, I'll just go to white charts and get the Dow data there or something, you know, and just I'm doing a little stitching and then just calculate returns from there. So, but yeah, that's basically what I do is I just, I have stuff ready at the ready and then I'll obviously find new things when I need it. But most of the the stock data is out there um i've never done intraday or anything like that i think it's a little more difficult to do and plus it's also like it's not as evergreen in my opinion so i try to get like long-term you know monthly data if i can uh, right that that makes a lot of sense so uh going into the book so um I don't want to cover every single chapter in the book because I, I do want listeners to go and buy the book. Uh, so uh, can, can we just do one topic from the saving side and, and one topic from the from the investing side? Yes. Uh, and, and then we can open the call to uh, callers. So so for the saving side, uh, as you know, uh, the, the topic that is dearest to me is, you know, rent versus buy. So under what conditions should uh, people think of renting a house and under what condition should people go go about buying so with with if you're renting you have flexibility and you're guaranteed that you won't have sudden expenses like uh, you know some uh, something breaks you have to fix or something like that uh, but at the same time um, you, you uh, when you buy a house uh, you may have these kinds of sudden expenses but then the uh, you you have kind of like a fixed mortgage and that payment is never going to change whereas if you, if you rent you're kind of at the whims of uh, inflation and so on because the the next time your lease is renewed you, you you may be charged a higher rate or whatever whereas you have that kind of protection if you're if you're if you're buying the house you you your mortgage remains fixed for the next 30 years or something like that uh, so, so there are all these different, both financial and non-financial considerations uh, that you, you have to take into account when you're making this decision. And I, I love the way you explained 
the the key issues in in that chapter. So could could you just go over for us uh, some some of those things you talked about in in that chapter, rent versus buy? Yeah, I think you touched on a lot of these already. But if I had to pick, like, what are the three key things you have to think about? Uh, the first one is like, okay, well, how long do you plan to be there? Right. I mean, I think if sometimes people are like, oh, I just want to buy a place, just say I own something. You buy a one bedroom. You, but you expect to, you know, maybe have a family like two to three years after that. Like now you're going to have to sell it and, you know, go and get a two or three bedroom or something else. Right. That's one thing to think about because the transaction costs, I say roughly on average, I mean, it did every, every sale is different than every person is going to experience different things. But let's just say on average, it's 6%. Right. And right, I right. use, and based on the Schiller data, uh, you know, home prices on average rise like 0.6% a year after inflation. Of course, what's happened in the last few years has been crazy. So it's really tough to say that while well, literally house prices have gone up like, I don't know, 20, 30% in a year, which is just absurd, right? So um, it's really tough to be like, well, you're using historical data, but just let's just do this for the argument. So if you're doing 0.6% a year, you know, the only way to, to make up for that transaction cost, you have to be there for 10 years, right? All, all else equal, like the appreciation 0.6 times 10 is 6%, which is roughly the size of a you know, the fee you're going to pay just getting in or out of a property, right? It's very interesting right. because stocks don't have any, basically at this point, transaction costs are zero, like on ETFs and trades and everything. There's basically no transaction costs at this point. So right, exactly. very interesting. There's that edge. Obviously, you can leverage in real estate, but that's a separate thing. So first thing is like, you know, make sure you're going to be there for a while. I think that's important. Second thing, which is kind of related to the first thing is make sure you have like a pretty stable, like professional and personal life. And so if you're someone who's you know you're trying to do a new job or something you don't you may not want to buy and then kind of change your entire career maybe you're changing careers or something because it could be risky in the sense of like you know you have no idea if if that's going to work out and you don't want to like be locking in this 30-year payment stream you know debt that you're going to owe and then something doesn't work out with your career take a huge risk after doing that maybe if you've been in it for a while you can then take the risk but doing it right out the gate would be a little little um you know, I guess ill-advised. And then the same thing with like, you want to have a relatively stable, you know, personal life in the sense you don't want to go and buy a house, as I said, one bedroom, then need a two or three bedroom later because your your personal life changes, right? You maybe meet a partner, have kids, all that. So that's, I think a lot of it. And so even I think most of the people who are like, oh, I'm pro renting, like they eventually buy as well. It's just a question of when. And so I think the most important thing for you is timing. And so it's interesting because if you think of housing, like personal real estate, I really look at it as almost like a single stock in that sense. But it's a single stock where you're investing, you know, 200000 plus or whatever the price of your home is, right? Because maybe you're putting a down payment or something, you know, you're investing right. a ton of money into one stock. And so you have to really, really kind of do your homework and make sure the timing's right and everything. But yeah, so the first two things, as I said, you know, make sure you're there for like, what, 10 years at least, make sure you have some sort of stability in your professional and, and personal life. And then the third thing is make sure you can afford it. And so what does that mean? Make sure you can afford it. Make sure like your debt to income ratio is what I say below 43%. I think that's a what they call a qualified mortgage. So I think that's a decent ratio. In addition, um, can you put down a 20% down payment? If you can't, then I don't think you probably should be buying. That's another thing. Now, there are I have a, there's the, the exception I say is if you could afford to put down 20%, but you don't put down 20%, I think that's okay. Um, and so what do I mean by that? Because I think the it's okay to like, oh, I'm only going to put down five, but I could put down 20. I understand why it's like kind of scary to like have all that much money locked into an illiquid investment. I understand right, right. completely. 
But if you're someone that you doesn't have the, have the discipline, yeah, the discipline, yeah, it's a little liquidity, but it's also the discipline. Like if you have the discipline to save 20% and then decide not to put down 20%, that's okay. Um, but if you're someone who like, you can't get to that 20% or even close, and then you take it, I think it's a lot riskier. So I think, you know, the thing I say about debt in general, which is in the prior chapter is like debt is best for people who don't need it, right? The people who use debt the best are the people who do not need to take debt, right? So, you know, look at who's the best example of this, like Elon Musk, he, he took out, you know, loans on and he used his Tesla stock as collateral and he took loans on it because it was cheaper to do that and pay whatever some very small interest rate on that than it was to sell his stock, which is possibly still appreciating and then pay taxes as well. So when you start looking at things like that, you realize the people who use debt best are the people that don't need it at all. Can you do that with $43 billion? (laughs) That's a great question. Yeah. By Twitter. (laughs) We'll see. We're going to find out very shortly. It seems like, or maybe not. Um, but yeah, so I think that the main things here is like, can you afford it? And what I mean is like, if you can do the down payment, if your debt to income is low enough, I think that's generally okay. Um, and then, yeah, as I said, the timing is what matters. Right. So once again, your debt to income ratio is, it's, it's not the total uh, loan amount or anything like that. The the debt uh, that, that this ratio is referring to is the monthly payment, mortgage yes. payment uh, divided by your monthly take home pay uh, yeah, after taxes, right? Yep. Yeah, so if you're if you're paying two grand a month and your monthly take home pays five thousand, that's a forty percent, right? So right, right, um, yeah, something like that. But yeah, so just making sure like that's lower, you know, that's obviously better. I mean, you don't have to minimize it, but you want it to be below a certain amount because I think once they say over forty three percent, it's just much riskier and things like that. So I don't know what the right amount is. Obviously, it's whatever you feel comfortable with, you can sleep at night with. That's what's important. Every person is going to be different. So and then there's also right. some people that just hate debt. So there's gonna be people out there that which I think it's not optimal financially to like pay off your entire mortgage, especially if you have a very cheap rate. Like, but I know people that have done it for the peace of mind and they just, they're like, you know what? I just want my home paid off. I don't have to worry about owing someone something or losing the house or something. So, and I get that. Um, Exactly. So So we we had Brian Feroldi on here earlier to talk about his book and he he spent uh, a significant amount of time talking about why he paid off his uh, and entire mortgage simply because uh, you know he he didn't want the stress of extra debt and he he just wanted to be free and he felt that um, if he didn't have to worry about that then he was more likely to make better decisions with the rest of his money as an investor uh, if he didn't have the stress of of debt. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And I see that I actually know a lot of people that have done that. I know. Morgan Housel's done that. And there's a lot of other people in the financial space that have done that. Um, I don't own any property, but if I do, I will definitely be probably keeping on to that debt. So especially if the rate's low. So because um, I don't think it bothers me in the same way. And, and there's actually some studies on this. They found the only type of yeah, debt. Yeah, those people... guys are irrational. Whereas <laughs> yeah. you are rational. <laughs> <laughs> no, everyone's rational. In their own... From everyone's perspective, someone, you know, if you really understand people, like you understand where they're coming from, you got to understand rationality. Like I'm very biased against real estate because – you know, this is just my personal thing. So I do talk about this and say, hey, you can own real estate and do all this. But at the same time, I'm very biased because I saw both my mother and father um, lose homes during, you know, the 08 crash, right? So I saw this happen, you know, real life. I've lived, I was in California, very high growth area. I saw the house, right. in, for example, my mom's property went from 275 when they bought it, maxed out at like 575 or 565, some large amount, and then it crashed and just it was underwater and all this stuff. And so, yeah, I've seen that happen. And, you know, so I'm very biased against real estate and I know I'm biased. 
Um, but it's just trying to kind of unlearn those lessons and it's tough, right. To like, cause you went through it, you lived it and it's really tough to like unlive that lesson, especially now that home prices are so high again, I'm starting to think like, is this a repeat, you know? And I don't necessarily think it is. It's very different now than it was then in terms of what people are doing with housing, but prices are very high right now. And like, I have friends who are like, oh, I'm selling my house and I'm just going to wait it out and see what happens. And I'm like, well, the prices could go up even more and then you end up buying, you know, it's like one of those things, like. So it's, it's a really tough game to play, but you know, it, it is so important. As I said, think of it like an individual stock. And so you have to do a lot of research and then just kind of buy and hope for the best and just kind of stick with it really. So that's, that's what it is. It's probably the most important financial decision you're going to make because just the size is bigger. You're, you're just putting right, right. more money down. That's why it would be like, okay, you can't own the S&P 500 index fund. You have to own one stock. What would you do? That you would do a lot of research. You make sure it's right. Right. And so that's what I think people need to do to do it right. Absolutely, absolutely, great, great points. Um, and c- coming to the uh, to the investing side, so uh, so I'm I'm going to select one one chapter from the book that um, you know I don't practice um, by myself. So I, I'd like to get your views on it because um, you know our, our styles of investing are are fairly different. And so you you have this entire chapter in the book that says why you shouldn't invest in individual stocks, why, why you shouldn't pick individual stocks. And, and you have excellent arguments in there. So that there is a financial argument and then there is something uh, that's more fundamental called an existential argument. And I, I love the way you are, uh, argued about this. And uh, it, it's not the way I invest. I, I do pick individual stocks, but it's, it's only because I, I have so much of fun doing it and I, I don't really care that much about outperformance versus underperformance but i i would love to uh, have you recap on on the show uh, bo- both the financial argument and the existential argument for why most people shouldn't uh, pick individual stocks of course yeah and so just a quick disclaimer i just want to say this out the bat like if you're picking individual stocks since a very small percentage of your portfolio that's fine i'm not against that like for fun for example i wrote a whole chapter called why you shouldn't pick individual stocks and i have i own two individual stocks i will not say the names of them here um but they're less than one percent they're like one percent of my portfolio i think they were one percent and they've since crashed a bit so they're like less than one percent of my portfolio now so that's the joke here but that anyway my point, is, your like, point yeah there's nothing like i do with a friend or something there's nothing wrong with that i'm not like against it i just think like people who have like 80 percent of their net worth and like you know a handful of stocks it can be kind of scary and here's why and the two arguments first argument most of the audience has probably heard it's called the financial argument basically or the performance argument and basically like you just look at the data and the best place for this is called the spiva reports spiva spiva um, you can just go to their website and you can see like most active managers, stock pickers don't be their benchmarks, you know, and this is um, it's like 80, some 70 to 80 percent won't be their benchmarks over a three to five year period after fees. And this is true. Like you can look at basically any equity market and this is generally going to be true. And the longer time horizon you, you use, the lower that percentage gets. Right. So people right. do have runs. And the question is, is that skill? Is that luck? I don't know. And it's a, it's a great question. You can have skill at one period and then lose it in another if the market, the fundamentals change in some way. So. Um, I think the audience knows that argument and I think it's a decent argument, but you know, some people just don't care about the underperformance. Okay. That's fine. Like let's, maybe that's not as big a deal. So let's toss that for now. And so the second argument, which you brought up is called the existential argument. And basically it's just like, how do you know if you're a good stock picker? Like, how do you know if you're any good at it? Now I'm assuming you're trying to make money, right? If you're just doing it for fun, that's one thing, but let's say you're like, I want to be, I think I can beat the market. I think I'm good. Like that's the reason you're doing it. Um, like, my question is, how do you know if you're good at it? And then the issue is like, 
with many other disciplines in life, the feedback loop between when you take an action and when you find out if you're successful is usually pretty small. You know, if we're playing basketball and I shoot the, you know, shoot the ball, I'm going to know within, you know, a few seconds whether it went in or not. I'm going to have like some feedback on my skill, right? And as I keep playing, you'll get more feedback. And even observers who aren't experts in basketball but understand the basic rules of the game can watch people play and they'll know, oh, that person's more skilled than that person. You could figure that out within 10 minutes. You would know if someone has some skill, right? But stock picking, that's not true. I mean, we you can pick a set of stocks. I can pick a set of stocks. And we come back a year later and let's say we're just long only. We're not day trading. Like, let's just say we're long only. A year later, I could outperform you, but that doesn't necessarily tell you that I'm better. Now, it probably means that I'm better, but after one year, you wouldn't know. But let's say we did this for 10 years. Then maybe maybe we would know. But, like, still, there's some luck that could happen. Like, someone could still get lucky. And so that's right. the, like, can you look at yourself in the mirror every day and your life is you know, doing something where you're, you, it's difficult to prove if you're good at it. And I'm not saying that there's no skill in stock picking. I think that would be a lie. And the data shows that would be a lie because they say something like 10 to 15%. There's different studies on this that show like, you know, uh, stock, there are stock pickers of skill. So there's roughly, you know, one in 10 to maybe one in six have skill, but that means that the rest probably don't, or it's very difficult to identify. So it's like, do you want to be one of those people, you know, if it's like five out of six people or, you know, a good portion of people that can't identify their skill and you're not going to know for a decade or longer. I think even Corey Hofstein's written on this with, with uh, right. factors and stuff. And he said like the amount of time you need to know whether value on, is like no longer there, the value premium, it would take like 20 years or something to, to prove statistically, given the history, we would need to wait like 20 years before we would know like value is truly dead. You know, so like to say that it's not just having a really bad underperformance run. So that's one of those things. And remember, that's with factors, but you can make that same logic to individual stock pickers. So that's kind of my second argument there is the whole existential one. And there's actually a third argument, which I didn't put in the book, but I th- now I'm thinking back, I should have added. It's always one of those things you always want to add more. And that's just this is what I call the identity argument. And I think it's because like as investors, everyone knows the default option. What's the default option? You own an index fund. It's obvious. You own the S&P 500, whatever you're doing. And anytime you vary from that, you start to identify with your investments in a way. So you're going to be like, oh, I put all my money into Apple and Activision instead of putting it into the S&P 500. So if Apple and Activision don't do as well, you're going to feel bad, like you made a wrong choice. Or if they do really well, you're going to feel like a genius. You made a right choice, right? So you're going to identify with that. And I've noticed this personally. I remember when I had like a little bit of money in individual stocks, I would watch those things all day. Even though my S&P, my, all my passive vehicles had way more money in them, like 90% of my money was in my passive stuff. And it was Great. fluctuating by far more in terms of absolute dollars on a day-to-day basis. I was still like watching these individual stocks I had owned because of the identity piece of like, am I a decent at this or you know did i make a bad choice and i think that's also going to get at you too so in addition to like oh am i good at this you're going to start just like focusing on it and i'm like don't spend time and energy on that stuff like you're probably not like the best stock picker and that's fine just like pick some you know own an index fund and then spend your time more productively on something else so that's my take there and especially if you have like less money to invest it's even more true because every hour you spend doing that you probably if you really just care about like maximizing your wealth like you probably would be better off like having a side job or a side hustle that's going to earn you more money you know just per hour spent than doing something trying to maximize your alpha with your um, with your investments you know right absolutely uh, so w- what do you think of the argument that uh, so when i want to uh, for for me to sleep well at night, uh, I, I would really like to understand 
the companies in my portfolio. I, I want to understand their economics and so on. I, if I just own an index fund with a with a huge number of companies that I can't understand, then uh, I'm not too comfortable with that. I, I would really like to, uh, I, I may own a diversified portfolio of 20 stocks or something like that, but I, I really do want to understand the economics of each individual business in the portfolio. What, what do you think of that argument for picking stocks? Not, not necessarily to beat the market, but just to uh, achieve a certain level of comfort that I know what I own. Uh, yeah, no, I completely, I completely understand that argument. Some people are going to be like that. They're going to be like, I really want to have an understanding of what I'm investing in, like a deep level. And I think some people, you know, care less about that. Like, I, I don't care as much about that, right? Like, there's smarter people. Like, do I, like, I understand what Apple does. They create, you know, okay, they create iPhones, they create uh, computers, they create, I can go through their accessory line, whatever. But do I fully understand how an iPhone works? Do I fully understand all that stuff? Like, no. I mean, maybe the economics you can kind of get into, not the technology. But and there's right. a lot of stuff out there that I'm just ignorant on, and that's fine. Because otherwise, I would have to be like, you're called the 10K diver because you dig through a lot of these 10Ks. You have to understand a lot. And I'm just saying, it's just the the amount of, of of understanding you have to have. It's 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 something you have to love, I think. And I don't think I love it enough to spend that time to do that. But for those that do, I completely understand why they would do that. So there's no something against that. And that's what I'm saying. If you love it, I can't prevent you from doing it. Right. And I just want to make sure like, if you do do it, like try and be diversified, try to, you know, care about concentration. There's ways you can do it, but where you're not doing that, where you're not getting too concentrated, you're not doing stuff like that. But it's very easy to, once you start this thing and you start seeing a lot of gains in one area to start like, okay, maybe I'll just let that ride forever. And, you know, and you start getting too concentrated and, and then bad things can happen. So I think my, my key takeaway here is like, if you can follow all the other principles of investing while buying individual stocks, you're probably going to be fine. But it's just a matter of like making sure you can do that. I think is, is the hard part, you know, cause it's very easy to get taken away. Oh, this, this stock's doing really well, or oh, the stock's losing really badly. Should I cut and run or should I just hold on and hope it recovers? I mean, there's all sorts of games you have to play once you start doing that, that are, that are much harder that you don't have to play that game when you have uh, an index fund. Cause you know, and I mean, if you really think about what an index fund like S&P 500, it's a momentum fund in the sense of like all the, the companies that are going down usually get pulled out, all the companies that are exactly. thrown in, right? So you're really just like getting a free ride off of, you know, Standard & Poor's research, right? And all the and all the active managers out there picking stocks, people like you who are adjusting market prices based on your purchases and sales, right? So, you know, as an index investor, it's just like you get this a massive benefit from the industry that you don't have to pay for. And I think that's kind of incredible in its own right. Definitely, and and these days you can you can get that diversification for um, the 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 whole the benefit of owning the entire index for for very very cheap. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. So have have you thought about uh, you you did mention your your foray into Instagram and so on, but have have you thought about video Nick like uh, a, a YouTube channel or something like that? I've thought about it a little bit. Um, I don't know if I would do that yet. Maybe at some point I might consider that because, you know, I have thought about like, you know, I write once a week. That's what people know me for. But like, you know, how much longer am I going to keep doing that? Maybe I'll go to a system where I just say, hey, it's not going to be once a week. I'll just post periodically when I find something. So maybe in one week I'll write two posts and then I won't write something for like three weeks or something, you know. But there is like this habitual thing that I built that's like 
it's difficult, you know, because once you like have a lifestyle of doing something, like I already plan for these things to be in there. But there's a possibility I may cut back on the writing um, a little um, and do something else. I've been, I'm just thinking about it right now. I'm not sure yet. I mean, I'm still trying to promote the book, see how that does. There's a lot of stuff going on there. But yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. And like, yeah, the thing about doing video, I've definitely thought about it. I just got to figure out like, what's the best way to do it where I can really deliver high quality work. That's everything to me. Like in, if I had to give, you know, uh, a new blogger or writer or whatever, a new content creator advice, the only piece of advice I would give is just focus on quality. Like that is everything in this game. Cause the, the higher the quality, the more incentive like other people have to share it basically. And so like, I would say like, I, for example, when I talk about like growing a Twitter following, I would say like half my followers came from my original content. The other half probably came from me sharing other people's content. And so I'm now looked as like a trusted resource in the space where I'm like, hey, check this article out. People are like, oh, Nick just sends crappy articles. No, they're like, oh, he usually sends really good stuff. So when he says to check something out, I trust him and I will read it. And it's usually good. And so as long as every time I do that, I say, hey, read this article. People read it. They like it. Then I'm building that trust with my audience to say, hey, in the future when i say read this article you're just trust me you know and i'll preface it, i'll be like hey if you've ever been interested in this particular topic you should read this right you know right. And so i was like saying some people like oh some people wouldn't be into them so who cares but i i try to always you know preface it and say hey you know if you're into this you might like this because i i was into this and i like this right and i think i just i think a lot of this really is just like i think i know myself decently well and getting better at it and so it's like oh if i would like this i mean my audience would so a lot of the times when i'm writing stuff i'm just like trying to put out stuff that i would enjoy to read and so i'm like if i would enjoy it i hope my audience would as well so that's kind of the right. the, the main the main takeaway there right so when you started your blog in 2017 uh, at the time, you, you didn't really have a, a loyal uh, readership or anything like that, right? So over, over a period of time, you've built this incredible following and this incredible readership. So did, did it come in uh, fits and spurts or was the growth fairly steady? W were there well-defined points where so somebody big shared your article or something like that and then you immediately got a lot of readers? How, how exactly did the growth happen from 2017 to today it's fits and starts for a while at least the first maybe year year and a half was fits and starts like i'd be blogging and then josh brown would tweet out you know this is my new favorite blogger and then i get a thousand twitter followers in a day you know and then you know maybe another couple hundred email subs right and i keep doing it so i'm like at twenty thousand email subs there's not even that many in the grand scheme of things like that's a lot for like someone who's new but like I know so many people that have started way later than me and have grown way faster. You know, Packy's one example. Packy McCormick has just done so oh, yeah. incredible. It is his full-time thing versus like I have a full-time day job. So I get he puts more time into it, but he's really done a great job regardless. That's, that's no excuse. Um, there's a lot of people that have done that. So I think a lot of it is just like it was fits and starts and, and it changes over time. I think like for, I used to think like, oh, my audience is kind of capped out and I like didn't really see much more growth. Just very slow growth for a long time. And then, COVID happened and pages went through the roof because that's everyone, you know, it's like when the, the higher the VIX, the higher the clicks is the, is the term in the financial blogger space. Right. And it's true. And I've seen it happen. I've talked to people and like my pages are never higher than in 2020, you know, and now like my pages are sufficiently high and still get a lot of stuff coming in. But like during 2020, it was just absurd because there were so many people thinking about these topics and I was writing about what was happening in the market as it was happening in a way right. that I really haven't done since. Right. It's like, I'm not writing about the markets in the same way now because it's just not as, I guess, exciting is the right term here. But yeah, and so it just comes in fits and starts. And, you know, recently, yeah, it's 2020 saw a big jump. So that was like another big 
big jump. But yeah, it's mostly, I would say, been slow growth, slowly getting people here and there. And I write about different stuff. Some people follow me for like my personal takes and like when I'm talking about alcohol, my struggles with alcohol or something else. I literally have a lot of people that just follow me for that stuff. And like, yeah, I'll look at the finance stuff here and there. But mostly I'm here for like when you write some really cool piece on something else, you know? So it's interesting to me who follows and for why. Um, but yeah, it's just been a slow growth. And I'm okay I, I, with that. I didn't even know that you had those, those kinds of posts. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. So I, those, those someone's come up. They're actually pretty popular sometimes too. So, which is interesting because, and they're only like, I would say a personal post is maybe one in every 10 or maybe every 12 or so. So once every mm-hmm. three months, I'll talk about something personal. I won't be necessarily financially related, at least not explicitly. And so those tend to do well. Um, Cause I'm just, you know, I'm like, Hey, I'm a human too. I know I just talk about money all the time, but like, I really do still like live a life like everyone else, you know? <laughs> By the fact we're not talking about everything's not dollar cost averaging at the end of the day, right? Like it's just kind of a you know I just got famous. So for you're that not stuff. just Nikki numbers. <laughs> yes, yeah, not just Nikki numbers. You know, there's a little bit more to it than that. So, um, but yeah, it's been it's been pretty cool to kind of just do that and kind of talk to people and stuff. But yeah, it's slow growth, and I'm okay with it. I'm not like oh my god, I'm not trying to be growth hacky and do because I think I think people realize you know when you're being sold something versus like someone just loves to do it and i hope most people would realize i just love this stuff and like that's why i write like i'm not here to like sell you a course or this or that i do i do have a book now so i'm trying to sell that don't get me wrong but at the same time like in the grand scheme of things like you know it's like it's a 17 dollar book it's not a ten thousand dollar trading course and how to get you know it's like if you look at the nefariousness of stuff that's out there and like there's a lot of people doing stuff that's really kind of shady and i'm just like i don't try to do that like i your time's already enough as it is like taking people's time just to like read my work Work. And so that's like, that's the currency I really charge. If you think about it, like you think about a book, like let's say you pay 20 bucks for a book. Is that the real cost? Like, no, for all practical purposes, it's zero. Everyone can get $20, you know, basically right. anyone can find $20. It's your time It's sitting there and reading it for six hours and trying to understand the topics and spending all that time doing it. That's, that's the real cost, you know? So I think that's where I, I really try to focus on people's time and trying to reduce how much time I use of theirs, you know? And I think that's another thing too, is like, there's a lot of people out there that like trying to maximize, send tons of stuff into the world to try and get as much time. And I'm like, no, I, that's why I write once a week. It's like, Hey, I'm, I'm only going to want five minutes of your time this week. But if you give it to me, I hope, I hope you trust me so that you come back the next week. Right. That's the idea. And so that's what I keep trying to do. I, I absolutely love this. Uh, not, not, not least because, uh, it, it, it sort of supports my own uh, inherent in beliefs. Uh, so so I, I also put out a thread uh, roughly once a week, approximately. Uh, and uh, I, I don't really post too much uh, in, in between. So this, um, so may, maybe we are just uh, in our own little echo chamber here, reinforcing each yes. other's beliefs. But I, I love what you say. I appreciate that. <laughs> of course, yeah. And I, I agree with that. It's like just one of these things like, hey, put something out there. Some people are going to like certain pieces. They won't like others. And that's what's cool is like, I don't know. I'm, I bet you've seen this as well. It's like certain threads people are going to, you know, really relate to in a much bigger way than other threads. Right. And just like with certain my pieces, like some, and that's what I think is really cool. The diversity of like, oh, of, of people telling me, oh, I really like this piece. Or that was your best piece ever, Nick. And I'm like, I don't think that was my best piece ever. But hey, that's, if they believe that, that's that's on them. They found something useful in there that that maybe other people didn't find. I think that's kind of the beauty of writing a lot, especially doing it for a long time online, is you, different people remember you for different things, which is kind of cool. And I think that shows like the diversity of your ideas and, you know, you're really kind of maturing as a writer. Oh, definitely. But, you know, to this day, when I put out a thread, I, I have zero idea whether this this is going to be a highly popular thread or not well actually 
some, sometimes I know that this is not going to be super popular. If, if it has a lot of math or something like that, it, it's, it's not going to be super popular. I, I know that. But the rest of the time when I put out a thread, it, it's really, uh, I'm, I'm very bad at predicting how, how well it'll do. I, I just have to wait for people to tell me how they found it. Yeah, I, I, I would, I'm the same way. I say like 90% of my posts, I have no idea. Sometimes I know, okay, this is a little too market history heavy. I know this is not going to do super well. Once in a while, I know, like if I find a discoverer, I'm like, oh, this is this is pretty hot. This is going to be pretty good. I know it'll do well. And there, that's rare. But there's times when I'm like, I'm digging into something and I realize like, oh my gosh, these numbers don't add up. Let me just triple check this. I'm like, okay, this is going to do well. Like there are very well times, but it does happen. But it's, I agree, it's super rare. It's super hard to do. Like uh, most of my posts, I just send them out into the void and... I just like how well it's going to do. I don't know, you know, I don't worry about it as much. You know, once you've done it 290 times, I don't know how many, how many threads you've now done 10 K, but like once you've done it enough, it's just, you stop kind of like associating every, your like, you know, your, uh, your self-worth as a writer and everything with it. Cause after you've done it, enough, oh, you yeah, yeah. break it's, away from that. I, I Early on, it's to tough though. Fun. It's tough. It's tough not to. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Oh yeah. I, I'm, I'm on 86 or something mm-hmm. like that. And, uh, I, I just do it to happen. Yeah, exactly. And that's what's for me. It's that point of just like still trying to put out cool content and stuff that's just different. Like that would make you think differently about stuff. And so if I, if I used to think like about a, an issue like for one one way for a long time and then I realized, oh, it's actually the opposite or it's different. That's those pieces I love. Like the 401k one. I've heard Max out your 401k forever and I discussed, I wrote a blog post on this and then I kind of did the research a little bit deeper and put it in the book. And I basically just talk about like, yeah, why you a lot of people probably shouldn't. And it's just something that like we've, it's almost universal advice at this point. As I say, 10 out of 10 personal finance experts would tell you to max out your 401k. And I'm here to tell you like, maybe not like let's reconsider it. And I just want to have a conversation. What a lot of this is here. I'm not here to prove, I don't think you can prove anything. I think it's really tough, especially when there's trade-offs like risk and reward involved. But I just want us to have more open conversations about this and say, well, if the data says this and we're looking at this and behaviorally it's like this, then is this the optimal way forward? So that's the kind of stuff I, I like to do is like kind of open those up and kind of discuss. I just want to open up a discussion around these topics. I think people think are solved and I'm like, I don't think they're solved yet. And let's discuss why. Right. Exactly. In fact, I think I do remember the, the uh, exact moment you, you got interested in this. Uh, should you max, max out your 401k or not? I, I think it was a TikTok video that started your interest in this. And then you, you tweeted about it. And then you went mm-hmm. back and did some more research and posted on it and so on. It's all super interesting. Yeah, Chris Crone, that Chris Crone video was hilarious. And it was obviously like not perfectly right. But I was like, you know what? Maybe he's got a point. Maybe he's feeling something intuitively that's not right. And like, let me run the numbers a little. I was like, oh, he's probably he's more right than he seems, despite some of the things he said weren't accurate. Right. I, the feeling is what's it's right. It's TikTok. You know? Yeah, it's, that's what I'm saying. Sometimes people have instinct and they know they're right, but they don't know why they're right. And there's times when I can do, like there are times when I hear arguments, I'm like, I can tell you that this isn't right. I can't tell you why yet, but I need to think about it and write it out, right? And so it's one of those types of things when you've been doing something long enough. Like I can, with almost any market timing strategy at this point, I can tell you whether it's going to underperform or, or, or outperform. Like you can just tell me like, okay, here's the strategy. We hold cash until this happens and then we move to stocks. Then when this happens, we move to ball. Like you just tell me it. I basically done enough research here and read enough research on mark different market timing things that i could probably tell you what's going to happen before um before i without even running the numbers i just have an intuition over because i've been writing on it for so long um and i'm betsy it felt the same way about the 401k okay so each caller uh, please uh, think of one strategy to <laughs> oh ask. oh my god Nick. here we go <laughs> 
All right. Uh, so thank thank you so much for answering uh, the the questions. Uh, let's let's take questions from callers now. Uh, let's let's take the question from Casey. Mm-hmm. Hey, 10K. Hey, Nick. Um, few hey. questions here. So uh, I'm a fan of the compound and animal spirits. So what does Michael Batnick do for a day job beyond complaining about the Knicks losing and contradicting himself on podcasts? Oh my God! What type of question is this? Um... No, Michael does a lot for the company. So Michael's on our investment committee. He's basically the, I mean, his, his role is managing partner, but he's really like our, he's probably the best recruiter at the firm. And he's also on the investment committee. So he's doing a lot of stuff like figuring out how we invest all this money. We have almost $3 billion in assets. How do we actually invest that? He obviously does content as well. um, And he's, he's really like the no BS detector. Like he's probably the best person in the firm of like sniffing something out and feeling realizing if it's good or not very quickly. And I think the thing that people don't give Michael enough credit for is he is just an incredible researcher and he just, he literally reads everything like, and this is, I, I, I'm not saying this to big up myself or anything, but I'm just saying this, think about what the fact I'm about to tell you. I started blogging in the beginning of 2017. Michael Batnick was one of my first 20 followers, right? So he identified from somehow from my first two or three blog posts that I had some sort of talent or something enough to follow me that early, which is shocking to me. Like, you know, just I'm not saying like, I'm just saying, think about that. Like he found me before, you know, this is, you know, tens of thousands of followers before a lot of other people found me. Right. And so it's a, yeah. I think he found me my first 20 followers. Like that shows a level of like due diligence. He's searching through stuff. He's always looking at stuff to the point where like. I don't even know how it happened. And that's like, I think people don't give Michael enough credit for a lot of that stuff. Um, and people don't know. And I, I know because like, he's my boss, he's my colleague, all this stuff. Like I work with him, you know, a lot. And so I know kind of what he's very good at. And he's just really good at just like finding information and like synthesizing. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff we do behind the scenes. There's like a lot of stuff we're doing for clients in terms of different offerings we're allowing, you know, it's like right now in the financial and the RIA space, everything's about valuing up. It's not about like, you know, um, so it's like just trying to add more capabilities, more things we can do, better tax planning where we have a tax practice. Now there's a lot of stuff we're doing to try and add value for clients. And Michael is like usually the lead on every one of those new projects. So I'm a fan of his, I'm just yeah. messing. Um, here, here's, here's a more serious question for you. So you've talked in the past about not even, uh, personally, uh, chasing Alfie yourself and how dollar cost averaging and diversifying is a, is a good play for your, your average investor. So I think, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think index investing or passive investing is around right around 50% of the market and then maybe active is 50%. Let's say let's say uh, passive gets to 60 or 70 or even 80% of you know the US equities. Is there a certain point uh, with you know your background being a data scientist where you've pondered where it, it does become more advantageous to seek alpha to be an active investor if passive becomes too too much of the overall market? Yeah, so this this is one of the oldest questions out there, and it's super interesting. Like, if you look up like the Bogleheads forums, they have debated this thing to death for so long, and no one knows the actual answer because everyone's like just guessing. Oh, at sixty percent past seventy, eighty, we're nowhere close to that, in my opinion. We're still not anywhere close to that happening. I think passive's not even fifty. I think fifty's too high. I could be wrong, but like. It, we're nowhere close to that. And once we get there, then yes, alpha is going to matter going back there. I don't think we're going to get there personally. I think human nature is just too much of like, they just see like, oh, there has to be value in picking versus just owning everything. That seems ridiculous, right? And I think passive investing has been thrown off as this like, 
oh, you have no conviction, you know, you're, you know, versus like, oh, people in the, who are pickers, they have conviction. And, you know, so I, I don't actually believe that. I actually think passive investors have, I, I would argue I have more conviction than most active investors because I know the data very well. And I know that over a three to five year period, I'm going to outperform 75% of stock pickers after fees, you know? And so at the end of the day, like, I know that's going to be true. Like I am until, unless like the market somehow fundamentally, it's just not possible. Like you can look through every rolling period. That's going to be true. So I have tons of conviction in the strategy. And I think most people should have more conviction and don't worry about what other people say, but there's just, there's too much money in picking in the sense that like, there's always going to be people trying to, you know, predict the future. And that's, that's the whole point. And so because of that, that's basically how stock picking comes about in a big way. So I'm not worried about that. And then and the last question, let's say you're a high, high net worth individual and let's say you're not a rich widow or someone who's pretty naive about managing money. Um, what is the, the value proposition for wealth fund managers nowadays? So, so if you're a young, like, like the younger millennial finance guys like yourself and Housel, uh, you guys aren't advocating for, for seeking out. So if, if index, if index investing, the passive investing, passive investing is the best strategy why go to like why would i go to a ritholtz management why why would i go to any wealth wealth uh wealth manager and pay them a management fee instead of just doing it myself if in fact that's what you guys are advocating for is just throw it into index index funds yeah so this is a great question and and a lot of people do do it themselves and it's fine i think what we tend to find is there's a couple different uh things that wealth management firms can offer for example tax planning things like that that's really big and there's all sorts of things you can do with that. And I can give examples of this, but like, I think a lot of this is planning and just it's peace of mind. And just like, there's a lot of people that do this. And I've even spoken to people like I've been doing this for years. Where I'm just tired of doing it. And I just want someone else to do it for me. And I'm willing to pay, you know, 1% a year or 75 bips a year. Depends on your, obviously your asset level, right? To do this. And so for a lot of people, if you're supposed to be younger and your financial plan's not that complex, you probably don't need it yet. Or you probably just need like a lower tier service model, like where someone else can do it for you. But let's say you're using like a robo advisor, or maybe you have like a robo plus, um, you know, an advisor and we have for example we have an offering like that i'm saying there's different ways of doing it but you're right if if your financial plan isn't that complex you don't need to be paying for all these extra bells and whistles that you're not going to use or need so in terms of i think you know the ra space it's not about investment management anymore it's more about the you know financial planning and, and the life planning it's all of that and so there are still some ways that that um, RAs can add value in terms of the investment management. I think most of that is on the tax side, if I'm being honest. And, you know, I'll just give you a quick example since since we're here. Um, let's say you worked at Apple for a long time. You got paid a lot of, you know, uh, RSUs or something. I don't even know what they have. Let's say you have a lot. I'm sorry. You get a lot of equity, right? And so now you've been there a long time. Now you leave the firm. You have this huge position and you get out of but you have tons of gains, right? You're sitting on. So the question is, how do you do this in a way? And like, how do we create a portfolio for you that adjusts for that? So imagine instead of owning like the S&P 500 and Apple, we would take the S&P 500 and we would downweight Apple. We would downweight all the tech stocks so that the rest of it is like a little bit, you know, it's more like we're, we're diversifying better, right? We're like kind of downplaying because you have such a large position. So that's an example. And then as you can give us a tax budget of like, okay, we're going to, I can sell, you know, I want to give up this many gains this year. I'm willing to pay taxes on this much, right? Okay, then we can slowly sell that down and kind of get you into a more diversified portfolio over time. And that's something where like, this is not something that 
that Ritholtz does specifically, but we, we use, uh, you know, OSAM and stuff and they have a, you know, canvas, which is their big product, which is direct indexing, custom indexing that can do all this type of stuff. They have these capabilities. And since we're one of the select firms with them, we can use them for this type of thing. So I think there's a lot more value add stuff, but it is in these more complex situations. So for most people, you're right. Young people, I even tell, you know, my friends, I'm like, Hey, like, honestly, your things looks really simple. Like you don't need us yet, but one day you might. And so like, we want to be the source of like trying to be honest with you and not just like, Oh, we just want to raise as much assets as possible. Like, no, we want there to be a mutual fit. Otherwise we know you're going to leave. Like we're still running a business. So of course we want to make money, but at the same time we want it to be a good fit. Otherwise we know you're going to leave and it's not worth the time and effort and all that because we're going to lose money if we just keep bringing people on and then they end up leaving after a year, you know? So we don't want to do that. So that's my, my counter to you is like, you know, if it's right, we'll definitely recommend it. If it's not, we'll be like, hey, let's maybe we should wait or wait till this is a little bit more complex and you actually could use the, where it's more value to you. Well, that's the whole point. We want you to get a good value. And if you're not getting good value, you shouldn't be doing it because you're going to want to leave anyways. Makes sense. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Casey. Such a great answer, Nick. Thank you. Thank you so much. So do we have uh, any more callers? Well, you, usually when we don't have any callers, I plug this quote from Confucius. Uh, which says, uh, if you ask a question, you may look like a fool for a minute, but if you don't ask the question, you may remain a fool for life. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> if, if anyone has a question for Nick, uh, now is the time to step up. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if Howard want to come back up. Um, yeah, the only other thing is uh, on the book. So the book's out in the U.S. now. Um, international editions are coming out over the next few months. Um I don't know. I think the one in China, Korea is going to be out by later this year. India is going to be out May 5th. I believe we had a supply chain issue there. Um, and yeah, they're slowly rolling out throughout, you know, it's one of these things. I still don't fully have all full visibility into it, but it's been really interesting to kind of see that kind of slowly build out. Beautiful. So I, I really love the book and uh, I, I think all of you, you, you'll find something, uh, to, to take away from the book. So even, even if you think you already know um, that, say, say something something like dollar cost averaging, it's, it's just such a common practice and we, we hear so much about it. But if you actually read the book and if you, if you look at the way Nick has gone and analyzed the data and so on, it's going to give you some new insight uh, that you did not know before about dollar cost averaging. So, um, uh, this this is a lovely book. I, I really enjoyed uh, reading uh, through. Um, it, it, almost every every single chapter uh, gave me some little new nugget of information or some some new insight like this. Uh, so uh, go ahead, go get the book, and I, I, I fully recommend it and and so on. And thank thank you very much for coming on the show and answering all my questions so so patiently and uh, being such a great guest, Nick. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it, 10K. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was great. So, and everyone, I appreciate your time. Thank you for, for listening. If you have questions, feel free to DM me um, on Twitter. I will try to answer as many as I can. So just feel free to DM me. My DMs are open. All right. Dollar. My handle is at dollars and data on Twitter. So feel free to reach out. Thank you. Absolutely. Please go and follow Nick on Twitter. And uh, if you have any questions for me, DM me as well. Thank you all very much. And uh, see you next Sunday. Thank you.